0: chapter 9, verse 32, you can uh, find that on page 918, if you're using a pew Bible, and it'll be towards the, in the left column, towards, towards the bottom there, verse, verse 32, and uh, let me pray for us, Father thank you so much for your word and the time that we get to share together opening it. We pray that it would speak to us, that you would guard us from error as we, as we look at it, uh, that you would also fill us with joy because of it, um, and we would see in it your purposes working out in Christ, uh, and that your power would be on display even in our church body as we As we look at this text together today, and and in coming weeks and months and years, you would be pleased to use us to reach many uh, for Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, let's hear the word of the Lord from verse uh, 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him urging him please come to us without delay. So Peter rose And went with him, went with them. And when he arrived they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body he said, Tabitha, arise and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many months, many days, with one Simon, a tanner. I received a text message last Sunday. One of our brothers was in the hospital suffering a great pain in his stomach. Monday morning, an email from another brother having trouble walking, great pain in his feet, seeing a physical therapist to regain stability. Monday afternoon, another brother struggling through depression, needing uh, help to endure. On Tuesday, I went to the hospital to visit a member. On the elevator down, I met a woman quite bitter about her own heart problems. Tuesday night, my wife and I were reading articles on whether baby powder was causing ovarian cancer. On Wednesday, we looked into testing our building for different kinds of mold as a measure to care for a sister. On Thursday, it was difficult to scroll through BBC News without a headline involving death. On Friday, we learned that a little boy named Ethan, someone my wife follows on on Facebook, is having difficulties again with, with his already rebuilt heart. This is the broken world we live in. It's a world plagued with disease and with death. In the Bible is clear that the, that the world wasn't always like this. God created the world good, but due to our rebellion against Him, God broke the world. Romans 8 says that God subjected the world to futility. God cursed the world. Disease and death, cancer and hurricanes entered the world because of sin. And this is the world we're used to. So what do we make of it when a man like Peter heals a paralyzed man and raises a dead woman? That's not the world we're used to. What does this mean for us as individuals and for our world as a whole? What do the healing miracles in the Bible point us to? And What kind of hope might God's word be holding out for us all? And if it's holding out any hope, where do we find it? In whom do we trust for it? Will we be delivered and when? This passage points us to some answers. We ended our time last week on the note struck in verse 31. It says, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. And today we're going to encounter two examples where the church multiplies. It just so happens that these two examples of the church multiplying come on the tail end of two examples. ...accounts of Jesus healing somebody through Peter. The first healing occurs in Lydda. Lydda was about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So we're in the region of of Judea where the gospel is still spreading. Uh, Peter makes rounds to all the churches going here and there, it says. And eventually he visits the saints living in Lydda. Now, saints aren't super-Christians... Uh, Jesus uh, makes all Christians saints when he saves them. It, it means that these are a people who are set apart for God as holy, to be used for, for his purposes. So Peter is essentially visiting the church, all the Christians. And as he visits these saints, he he finds a man named Aeneas. Verse 33 says that he was bedridden for eight years. We also learn that he's Paralyzed. We're not told how his condition came about. But we do know that he's been paralyzed long enough for many other witnesses in the area to know about it. Peter then says to him in verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now note, Peter isn't healing him, but Jesus through Peter. Also notice that Peter calls Jesus... Christ, the Christ. That's significant, because it is giving these healings a context that comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament expected that during the rule and reign of God's Messiah, or His Christ, that the lame would leap, and the blind would see, and the deaf would hear. And Peter is identifying Jesus as that Christ, as that Messiah. Notice also how the verb is in the present tense. Jesus Christ heals you. Meaning Jesus is alive. Jesus was crucified but now risen and and actively, right then, healing Aeneas. Knowing this about Jesus... Peter then commands Aeneas to rise and make his bed. And it says, immediately he rose. And so after eight years of lying in bed, needing someone else to change his clothes, needing someone to bathe him and help him to the bathroom, eight years of feeling like everybody else's burden, immediately he gets up. Jesus heals what is broken. He restores this man to good health. Verse 35 then uh, describes the effect of this healing. All the residents of Lydah and Sharon saw him. It says they turned to the Lord. Now, it's not always the case in, in the book of Acts that a healing leads to people turning to the Lord. But very often, a miraculous healing makes the apostles' testimony all the more compelling to some, and they believe and that seems to be happening here. In fact, the whole point of healings in Jesus' ministry and now in the apostles' ministry was to help people turn to the Lord. They weren't just bare acts of, of healing, to, to just, just bare acts of, of power. They were also accompanied by the gospel of the kingdom. So you have the act of God being interpreted by the word of God at all times there. And so the gospel of the kingdom gives a framework for understanding these, these healings. and When understood properly in light of the king and his kingdom, they should lead people to repent and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Next is Peter's healing in Joppa. We're introduced to a disciple named Tabitha. Remember that Luke is particularly observant of how women were involved in in the mission. And in a day when society looked down on women, Luke shows how the kingdom of Christ actually stands those values upside down. Christ's kingdom turns the world's values upside down. Women play a vital role in the kingdom. Luke celebrates the fact that Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. Verse 39 shows that some of her acts of charity involved making tunics and other garments for, for the widows in, in the church. Tabitha was likely quite wealthy to be able to do this, but, but used her wealth to, to bless others in these ways. And we can tell how much she meant to the church by the way the people mourn her, her death. Her faithfulness, Luke Luke highlights her her faithfulness uh, here to even heighten the tragedy that this is. And and it's a tragedy that we have experienced too. Why the death of such a faithful servant? Why the death of of such a beloved woman and, and faithful minister of Christ? Why take her, Lord? Well, verse 37 says she becomes ill and, and dies. The people then wash her and, and lay her in an upper room. And the first action is, is fairly normal for burial customs. But laying her in an upper room is, is more unusual. And this may signal that you know, the people hope Peter might be able to, to uh, raise her. They're, they're willing to wait for him to, to come before burying her. So Peter ends up coming to Joppa at their request. He enters the upper room. The widows are weeping. Verse 40 says that he puts everybody outside. And that's interesting in light of some of the so-called healing ministries that will boast nowadays. Right? Not setting up a stage for everybody to come see him. He didn't cram as many people into the place to kick off a healing crusade. You know, quietly he has everyone leave. He humbly gets on his face before the Lord. He kneels and down and prays, verse 40 says. And again, this shows us that whatever happens next in the story wasn't due to Peter. Ultimately, it's due to the risen Jesus. He asks, Jesus answers. Jesus hears Peter's prayer and he raises Tabitha. He turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. And it says she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now Tabitha is raised only to die again, much like Talitha was in the Gospels and Lazarus. So this is a restoration to life. But still, the fact that Jesus raises her from the dead is remarkable. It's another demonstration that Uh, uh, ...that Jesus can do the impossible. Death has no hold on Jesus Christ. He is more powerful than death. The, The grave can't tell Jesus, no, when He says, come out. So verse 42 then gives us the result. It became known throughout all Joppa. And it says, many believed in the Lord. Again, the miracle of healing makes the gospel message all the more compelling... And people believe in the Lord. So these healings have somewhat of an evangelistic goal here. The church in Joppa multiplies. And we basically get the same pattern twice. Peter travels to meet the saints. Jesus heals somebody through Peter. And then the church continues to multiply. So what then should we, should we make of these healings? Um... What should we see in these healings? Are they, uh, are they simply describing what happened then, back then? Or do they set some kind of normative precedent for the church today? You know, I knew a church where they had a handful of people that kind of formed a splinter group on their own, and they, they self-identified as the God Squad. And uh, you could call upon them if, if you wanted them to come pray and heal, and they, they claim that God had given them the gift of healing. And they'd support their ministry with, with passages like, like this. Is that the sort of conclusions we, we should draw from, from these healings? Does a Redeemer Church need a God squad? The New Testament certainly acknowledges gifts of healings, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. And it's also clear that these gifts weren't just characteristic of the first century church, but expected to continue until Jesus returns. Places like 1 Corinthians 12 and James 5:16 show that God still may very well heal. However, that's not to say we should set up a so-called healing ministry. Or say that any one person possesses the gift to heal. Like in an abiding, permanent sense. You see, the apostles speak of the plural gifts of healings. Meaning instances where Jesus would give the ability to heal. And we also find examples where those who did heal on some occasions, did not heal on others. So, one example is Paul, he heals a man in Lystra, Acts 14. But he also leaves one of his sidekicks, Trophimus, sick at Miletus, 2 Timothy chapter 4. So, Jesus sometimes gave the gift to heal, at other times he didn't. And so, we should be very discerning... If someone claims to have the gift of healing or a church institutionalizes something that only Jesus gives to whomever he wants, whenever he wants. Should we say that Christians should expect complete liberation from disease now in this life? Is that how we should, should read this passage? Just name it and claim it, some might say. There's two glaring problems with this approach. There's more, but these are the two most glaring. One is it misses the already, not yet dynamic of Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom is already here. But it's not yet fully here. There's a sense in which Jesus' cross secured our ultimate healing. Yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the full blessings of that final kingdom don't become ours on demand right now. Sins are forgiven now. But we must wait for the full redemption of our bodies. And secondly, it lacks a sound theology of suffering. Uh, In His sovereign wisdom, God also, even in the ministries of Jesus and the Apostles... God sovereignly left many in their sickness to demonstrate his care and his glory and his sufficiency and his power in other ways. And we can think of biblical examples, even like Job or like Paul. Paul's ministry, you know, God's power was made perfect in his weakness. Or we could think of a modern example like Johnny e. Erickson Tata paralyzed, and bringing God so much glory as she treasures Him before a watching world. She thanks God for her wheelchair and how her condition has been used to know Him more deeply and to spread His fame more broadly. So what do we make of these healings? We've tried to curb some of the errors that others have made, but what can we take home from a passage like, like this one? Four things. Number one, Ask yourself why they're here to begin with. Like, why they're here in the book of Acts. What's going on as the book of Acts is unfolding? And if we look at the bigger picture, these healings authenticate Peter who will soon confirm the Gentile mission. They authenticate Peter who soon confirms the Gentile mission. It's not all they signal, but one way God would would use signs, like healing, was to authenticate His messengers. 2 Corinthians 12.12 talks about the signs of a a true apostle, or Hebrews 2.4. There are other examples. But remember that that this is volume 2 of a much larger work. Acts is volume two. Luke's gospel is volume one. And if you turn back to Luke chapter five, verse 24, you find Jesus saying to a paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Peter says here to a paralyzed man, rise and make your bed. If you turn back to Luke chapter eight, verse 54, you will find Jesus saying to a little girl named Talitha who died, Child, arise. And she gets up. Peter says here, Tabitha, arise. And she gets up. The scene is even the same in that Jesus comes in and He gets most of the people out of the room except for a handful of His disciples. And Peter is doing the same, comes and gets the people out of the room. You're supposed to... You're supposed to read Luke and then read Acts and you're supposed to see these parallels between Jesus' ministry there and the apostles' ministry here. And you're supposed to say, yeah, this is Jesus' man. He's preaching like him and he's suffering like him and he's even healing just like him. Even more, the, the healings are giving a concrete expression to the gospel Peter was preaching, and we saw this back in chapter 3 of Acts, where you know, he's basically, you know, the, the lame man gets up and he's leaping, and, and Peter's message is basically like, look at this guy. That means God exalted his servant Jesus. Jesus came to liberate us from all that sin destroyed, and he's alive, and his kingdom is here, is his message. So that's really important. To understand, because very soon Acts is going to shift from, we had Jerusalem, we had Sumeria and Judea, and now Acts is going to shift, and chapter 13 onward is going to be the the mission to the Gentiles, to the end of the earth, right? Well, right before Saul is sent out in chapters 11 and 12, Peter is the one who gets a vision and then confirms the message the mission to the Gentiles. Like, this is legit. We're going to do this. I'm not standing in God's way. So you've got that on one side. We've already been introduced to Saul, Paul, who's going to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And right between these two things is the healings. These two healings. So there's a message that Luke is trying to convey to us. You see, it's, it's important because for centuries, Jews have separated themselves from, from Gentiles. This is going to be hard for them to accept, to, to help embrace the Gentile mission. Luke is saying, Peter is Jesus' man. And this message is the same one Jesus was preaching which means that if Jesus has authenticated His Apostle... ...and if that Apostle has confirmed the Gentile mission... ...then what ought our lives be given to? Right? Spreading the Gospel to the Gentiles. We receive the Gospel because the church listened to Jesus working and speaking through His Apostles... We've become part of the, the gospel moving to the end of the earth. These healings should compel us to participate in Jesus' mission. We should announce with Peter that God has exalted Jesus. We, we can even point people to instances like this in the Bible where God is healing people and say, God exalted Jesus. Look, he's alive. He was healing. This is him, he's victorious. And we can even say, and He's rescuing people even now as the gospel continues to spread. Believe in Him. Number two, these healings are the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection. They are the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection. So not too long ago we looked at uh, Isaiah 35 Uh, God promised a day when the the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, it says, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In the the day that God's Messiah would come, the broken world would experience wholeness and and healing. Isaiah 25 also adds to that picture of the coming kingdom uh, total deliverance from death. God would swallow up death forever... ...and the Lord will wipe away all tears from people's faces. However, healing, if you read on in the book of Isaiah... ...healing the world couldn't come without God... ...dealing first with our most fundamental problem... ...which is sin. You see, death and disease exist because of sin... Sin is the cause, disease, and death, whether directly or indirectly. So to redeem the world from disease and death, you've got to deal with the root first. You've got to deal with sin first. And so Isaiah himself even links these two things in the redeeming work of the servant. This is Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, where verse 4 says... Surely He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But the way He does that then comes in verse 5. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. True healing is possible... Only when God deals with sin. doesn't matter if you have a healthy body, if you still have sin, you will perish. Jesus brings total healing by dealing with sin. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17, use this passage to connect Jesus' atoning death with Jesus' healing ministry. He quotes from the passage in Isaiah, I just... Read to you. The point is that Jesus's healing ministry must be viewed with the cross before him. Okay? When when you see him healing people and raising the dead and, and stuff in his earthly ministry, you've got to realize his cross is just on the horizon. Okay, Jesus healed this way. Healed, healed people this way to identify himself first with Isaiah's servant, so that when he goes to the cross, we see, oh, that's why he came. He came to deal with sin. He came to deal with sin, which was underlying the pro- these, these problems of disease and, and death. And then he actually dealt with that problem by dying in our place. So when Peter heals people, it's a little different, because now the cross is behind him. It's behind him. Okay, Healing the paralyzed man was just a... Conc- was just one concrete expression of the very gospel Peter was preaching. Jesus can heal ultimately because he came to take away our sin. By dealing with our sin in Christ, God wins for his people forgiven souls and eventually healed bodies as well. On top of that, Peter raises a girl from the dead and he does does this with Jesus' resurrection behind him. So Jesus is alive, Jesus Heals the man, it's further proof that the grave has no power over the risen Jesus. People will die, yes, but He has the authority to bring back to life whomever He uh, wants to, whenever He wants to. He is the resurrection and the life. He commands, Tabitha, arise, and the grave says, Sir, yes, sir. So these healings teach us about Jesus' mission. By atoning for sin, Jesus secures our total liberation from disease and death. And by, raising, by rising from the dead, Jesus proves His authority over death. And that's great hope. there's great hope for all people in both of those truths. That doesn't mean we can claim all the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection now. Remember, we live in the already and the not yet, which stretches between His resurrection and the second coming. Some benefits only come with Jesus' return and our resurrection bodies. But it does give us a sign that Jesus really did take care of our biggest problem, which was sin. Jesus really can fix our bodies and raise us to life again with just a word. Don't miss the power of Jesus to do the impossible here. He isn't limited by disease. He isn't limited by death. He's not limited by anyone or anything, and He hasn't changed. If He took care of our greatest problem, sin, if He gave us the greatest gift, which was God Himself, then He won't fail to care for us. He won't fail to save us. Uh, Number three. These healings display several characteristics of God's kingdom. They display several characteristics of God's kingdom. To begin, the kingdom is ruled by Jesus. Right? He's the Lord here. He, he's the one. Jesus Christ heals you. And it says everybody then turns to the Lord, which the Lord Jesus. So this kingdom is ruled by Jesus. God's kingdom is also one that breaks into the present order. It breaks into the present order. Again, I'm talking about the overlap of the ages here. We have this present age and and the age to come is sort of overlapped. It's it's breaking into the present order and it breaks into the present order because the king has come and he is reigning and ruling in heaven. So we talked earlier about disease and death characterizing still the, the present ...order that we, that we still live in, this, this broken world order. Sin is awful, broken is everything, pain is, is the norm, cancer spreads. But into this broken order, Peter can say, Jesus Christ heals you. The, the healing is just one little manifestation of, of God's coming kingdom... ...kind of breaking open in, in, in the present age. The future kingdom is, is kind of forcing its way into the present These are but little glimpses, little tastes of the holistic liberation to come. God's kingdom is also powerful to transform. It's powerful to transform. It makes a paralyzed man liberated and free to walk around. It takes a woman who's dead and makes her alive. These healings remind us that that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus' kingdom isn't limited by our problems. You know, sometimes we get used to the way things are. Uh, And we get cynical about the way things are. And we get fatalistic about the way things are. It even begins to shape our view of God Himself. We begin to think that God can't work in this situation. God can't overcome that sin. God won't change our church. God can't rescue that neighborhood. God can't save. God can't do anything. But he raises the dead, folks. He's able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. He took away our sins. Pray that He would work powerfully through our church. He hasn't changed. Pray for Him to manifest His power in ways that will draw others to Christ. Pray for Him to work powerfully in your own life. and Liberate you from sin and give you a greater desire for god and the pursuit of holiness you know sometimes the gospel was compelling not because of the miracle of healing but because of the miracle of perseverance of the saints people see others holding fast to jesus treasuring jesus in the midst of suffering (laughs) i want that christ The church itself manifests God's power when we walk together in, in love. We're, we're God's visible confirmation of the gospel's power to save us and to heal us. I mean, God is healing relationships right now. That's what the local church is. It is a manifestation of the kingdom of God breaking into people's lives and healing them one person at a time. That's what you are. It's what the, we ought to be and long for as the, the world looks in sees Christ healing us, restoring us. We are a little op- outcropping of the kingdom of God that's, that's coming. And Something else uh, here is that God's kingdom brings total restoration for male and female alike. Peter heals Aeneas, and then he raises Tabitha. So God's kingdom doesn't favor male over female or vice versa. It's a kingdom where the Lord saves men and women alike. And that should affect the way that we treat people of the opposite sex. And how we serve alongside one another in the mission. Both men and women can enjoy His grace and spread His glory together. And one further characteristic of God's kingdom is that it's a kingdom free from all brokenness and death. Uh, These healings are prefiguring the state of our humanity in the kingdom to come. Okay, and that leads us to, to one last point here. Number four, these healings point to a kingdom free from all brokenness and death. Free from all brokenness and death. We're born dying because of sin. It's how we come into the world. And our, our bodies are wasting away. But not all of our bodies experience the effects of the fall exactly the same way. You know, some suffer more than others. Some of you may be suffering from a, a chronic illness. And, and you get tired of, of going from one doctor to another. And you're tired of medical bills. And you're tired of not knowing what's going on. And you're just simply tired. And maybe you look at a passage like this one and and you'd really like to experience healing and maybe you've even prayed for it and you've asked others to pray for it and you should and we will pray that way for you. Just like James 5 says. But let's say that healing doesn't come. What, what, What then? Does a sort of fatalism ever settle in? Like it will always be this way. My spouse will always be this way. I will always be this way. Listen, I don't pretend to have the answers for why the Lord gives long health to some and not to others. And why He chooses to heal some and not others. I'm certain though that the Lord does nothing in vain. And He is wise and He is good and He is purposeful. We can even see that by looking at the cross of his own son. The greatest suffering the world, that anyone ever experienced, is at the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet it was not in vain. God was wise, God was good, God was achieving his purpose. And by saying some of these things, I don't even want to pretend like I know what it's like for some of you who are, are suffering, because I don't, at least yet. But I do want to stand up and just remind you of a few truths that we see in the Scriptures. John 9, the man is born blind, teaches that suffering is opportunity to glorify God. Romans 8 says that God uses our sufferings to to conform us to Christ's image. 2 Corinthians 1 says that sufferings come so we can experience God's comforting grace and then be used as a vessel of that grace in giving it to others who are also suffering. 2 Corinthians 5 says that present suffering is, is storing up for us an eternal weight of glory. So this is not in vain. It is doing something storing up for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hebrews 12 says that suffering serves as the discipline of a loving Father. James 1 says that suffering builds endurance. 1 Peter 1 says that suffering refines us like silver. And Revelation 21 says that suffering will end for those in Christ. And you know why all that's true? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and He has overcome sin and death. Look at His victory over sin in this passage. And look at His authority over death in this passage. You know, He will say over your dead body, Becky, arise. And Keith, arise. And Mark, arise. And Sherry, arise and Mary arise, and Luke arise, and Chris arise, and Tim arise. And you know what? We will rise because He has authority over death. All of His children will rise. No brokenness will slow Him down and no grave will stop Him. We will will hear the voice of the Son of Man and we will come out of our tombs, it says, to a resurrection of life. And for those of you in Christ... We can see in the Scriptures that He has not forgotten you. He's not ignoring your your prayers for healing. Every one of them will be answered on that day when He brings you into a kingdom free from all brokenness and death. Maybe they'll be answered even in part in this life. But they will all be answered totally and fully in the age to come. In other words, you won't always be this way. We know we won't always be this way because God took care of our greatest problem, sin. If He took away our sins and He raised Jesus again from the dead, God will bring our body ultimate healing at Jesus' return. No fatigue, no headaches, no back problems, no death. Revelation 21 says no crying or pain anymore. For those without Christ, their, suffer- their suffering will only get worse when He returns. But for those who are in Christ, all suffering will disappear instantly when He gives us our new bodies. We will play with new bodies and serve with strength and zeal like we've never known before. Until then, we can trust that all of His purposes in healing... Or suffering are going to be for our good and are going to be for His glory. Let we uh, pray for a minute.